Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 234 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about listeners' weird questions for Thanksgiving. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Happy Thanksgiving, Dom. Happy Thanksgiving. So it's the day after the U.S. holiday of Thanksgiving, so as is our custom, we're bringing you another episode of Weird Questions with Jimmy and Cy Kellett of Catholic Answers Live. Jimmy, what topics are you going to be answering questions about today? Well, we're going to be talking about lucid dreaming and morality. Would aliens worship Jesus Christ? Could there have been life in space immediately after the Big Bang? Would matter from the other side of the Big Bang be visible? Who sits at God's left hand? Would it be presumptuous to time travel to the future? Would you die if you touched the Blessed Virgin Mary? What is your level of responsibility for things you do in a trance? Will mental and physical disabilities exist in heaven? Could you kidnap Martin Luther to prevent the Reformation? And does the St. Gertrude prayer prove the existence of alien life? (laughs) Those are interesting questions. So now let's listen to your answers. Hello and welcome to Catholic Answers Live. Something good is about to happen. That's our weird questions with Jimmy Aiken music from Eric and Nato, who wrote that music and produced that music for us. Thank you, Eric and Nato. Jimmy Aiken, senior apologist here at Catholic Answers. Hello and welcome. Hello, Cy Kellett, and welcome. All right. Uh, you ready for some weird questions, Jimmy? Yeah, absolutely. All right. This one comes from Anonymous. Suppose there is a person that, while they are asleep and dreaming, has the capacity to recognize that they are having a dream and to guide their actions within the dream. How would sinful actions in their dream affect their regular life? Do you want me to keep calling? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. For example, if a person is married and one night had a dream with a celebrity in it that they find attractive, would it be symbol, excuse me, sinful to act on their feelings uh, within the dream? And if it's not inherently sinful, Would it maybe just be a bad idea because it might open the door to similar behaviors in their regular life? Okay, so um, having control of of what happens in your dreams is a real phenomenon. It it's known as lucid dreaming. Okay, where you realize you're in a dream and you have you can exert control over it potentially, or you just wake up once you realize you're in a dream. But as soon as you realize you're in a dream, it's a state of lucid dreaming. This technique can be learned. And so it is possible for people to do this kind of thing voluntarily. It's not discussed in the standard moral pastoral theologies in detail that I'm aware of. But even absent lucid dreaming, there are things people could do or think they could do historically to influence what they might dream about. You know, okay. Even if you're not in a dream state and you're not in control of it, you could kind of prep yourself. Or a dream I for see. being in a dream yeah. state before you yeah. actually go to bed and or as you're lying in bed. And the conclusion that uh, moral theologians have come to on this question is if you are prepping yourself 
or having dreams about behavior that would be sinful in real life, it would be sinful to do that because oh, essentially you're oh. setting yourself up yeah, yeah. for a future fantasy of a sinful nature. And Jesus said, you know, if you commit adultery with a woman in your heart, it's still a sin. Yeah. So this would be like priming yourself for having that kind of fantasy in a dream state. And it doesn't therefore relieve you of moral responsibility. Right. The same thing would be true if you're in a dream state and you are in full control of yourself morally and choose to make the dream go in an immoral direction. Yeah. But that's a, actually a bit of a different question because um, because you may not be in full moral control of yourself. You may only be partially in control. So in order uh, to commit a mortal sin, you have to have the deliberate use of reason. And even though it may feel at times in dreams that you have the deliberate use of reason, you really don't. It's kind of like when people are drunk and they may feel fully in control of themselves, but they're not. Right. Okay. And, gotcha. And so even it, so if you're having a lucid dream and you make a decision on the spur of the moment, you know, that's not something you had planned before going to sleep, you may not have the moral control over yourself that you think you do. Oh, okay. All right. So. If you become aware in a dream that you're dreaming, that's called a lucid dream. Yes. All right. I did that one time. Only mm -hmm. one time, though. Oh. And when I was a kid, I had a dream and I realized that it was a dream and I wanted to get out of it. And I thought, well, the only way to do that <laughs> is to pop the sky. Okay. Like I thought like it was like a bubble of dream. I had to pop it. Okay. But I couldn't figure out how to pop this guy. So mm. I'm, I don't know. I don't know what happened after that. I have lucid dreams periodically. Yeah. I normally don't have much control over them, though. I tend mm -hmm. to either think, oh, it would be neat for this to happen, and then it doesn't. Yeah. Or I just wake up once I realize it's a treat. Oh, yeah. But oh. it is a trainable skill. And, and it can be useful for people like who have post-traumatic stress disorder or oh. chronic nightmares. Yeah, to, to learn, learn how, how not to, to do certain Exactly. Things. Yeah, go in a different direction. Uh, Anonymous, thank you very much uh, for that question. Let's uh, up next is John. I'm just going to Darren. I'm correct, right? I'm going to John. OK. I saw this morning in discussion with Father Mark Goring about aliens. My question is this. If there are aliens out there and they're just God's creatures like us and the angels, as Jimmy Aiken said, they'd also worship the one true God, the Trinity, just as we do. Right. Okay, so that's the first part of his question. There's another part. But in response to the first part of his question, so he's referring to an interview I did with Father Mark Goring on YouTube okay. about aliens. And if intelligent aliens exist, we don't know what their religion would be any more than we would know what an uncontacted tribe here on Earth oh, yeah. would have as their religion. So with some tribes, God may have revealed himself to them. He may or may not have revealed the Trinity to them because, you know, there was a time here on Earth with the Jewish people before the Trinity had been clearly revealed. So he might reveal himself to people on another planet in the same way he had revealed himself to the Jewish people before the time of Christ. He might have revealed the Trinity to them the way he did at the time of Christ. Right. He might not have revealed himself to them the way the tribes, for example, in the Americas were yeah. in the first century. So we really don't know. I would guess that for most races, he's made himself known in some way, but the details could vary from race to race. Okay, so the second part of his question, 
But the second person of the Blessed Trinity would have what for them? Okay, would have what for them would be an alien body, the God man, Jesus Christ. I mean, how would they deal with a God who looked like us and not like them? Wouldn't that be kind of weird for them? Well, it it could be kind of weird for them. That would depend on their sense of aesthetics, and presumably their sense of aesthetics would be based on the life forms on their planet. And so to learn that God had incarnated as a human and only as a human would could could seem weird to them. On the other hand, it's really just an extension of a principle we have here on Earth, because even within the one human race, mm-hmm. we have sub-races. And Jesus incarnated as only one sub-race. He was a, he incarnated as a Jewish person. So if you have if you're from a different culture, if you're not a Jewish person, Jesus is in some way from a different genetic population than you are. Mm-hmm. Um, even here on Earth, some genetic populations are closer or more distant to the Jewish genetic population of the first century. So there's a little bit of that principle even here on Earth. It would just be a further extension of it with aliens who are even more genetically diverse from us. Having said that, you'll notice that I mentioned if God had incarnated as a human and only as a human. Yes. But it's not impossible for God to incarnate wherever he chooses because he's omnipotent. And so he could have parallel incarnations on other on other worlds if he chose to do that. The only one we know about, at least right now, is Jesus, but it's not impossible that he could have incarnated elsewhere. And in fact, there have been science fiction novels devoted to exploring the possibility of what would it be like if Jesus incarnated in another species. Ah, very good. Okay, uh, John, thank you very much. Um, there's a, a, a original Star Trek episode that ends with yeah, that's the sun. bread and circuses, and oh, they, yeah. they find this planet of Romans in the 20, with 20th century technology. Yeah. They keep hearing about these sun worshipers, and the stinger for the episode is when Lieutenant Uhura, who's been monitoring their radio broadcasts, reveals it's not the sun in the sky they're worshiping, it's the son of God. Uh, da, da, da. Uh, okay, we'll take the internet, and up next, this question comes from Michelle. If all matter were smaller and hotter prior to the big bang like like if i think what she's saying is if the whole universe was in a hot dense state yeah, yeah. about 13 billion years ago and then expansion started wait <laughs> then could it have contained life forms at those temperatures or was life introduced after matter cooled enough to support life as we know it so from our understanding of how hot it was when the Big Bang occurred and very shortly thereafter, it was actually so hot that... Um, How hot was it? <clears throat> Sorry, that's the old Jimmy Car- Johnny Carson thing. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> it was so hot that the universe actually could not have atoms form. And for the first 300,000 years, the universe was actually dark because light could not propagate. It was so dense the energy density was so high. And so you didn't actually wow. have the lights turn on until about 300,000 years into the process. And that's what gave us the cosmic microwave background radiation. It's the, it's the image of the first burst of light once the universe became diffuse enough to allow light to move from one place to another. That is so weird. So if there was any life at this time, it would have had to be very different from anything we understand as life. 
Having said that, the universe then decreased in temperature as it expanded, and it did pass through a range where the average temperature would have been consistent, for example, with water-based life. The question would then be, was there enough of the right elements for water-based life to exist when the universe was at the right temperature? And because water now, so water is uh, hydrogen and oxygen, and hydrogen was the primordial element that formed along with some helium and a little bit of lithium. But oxygen is, is element eight. And so oxygen was not produced at the Big Bang or in the wake of the Big Bang, what's called Big Bang nucleosynthesis. Instead, oxygen is produced by stellar nucleosynthesis, where stars squeeze hydrogen and helium together to make yeah. heavier elements like oxygen. And then at the end of the star's life, it starts releasing those elements into space. So my understanding is that you didn't have enough of the right kinds of elements in in space when the universe was at the right temperature for mm -hmm. this to happen. But there have been speculations about could there have been some sort of life when the universe was a balmy 70 degrees on average? And the answer is we don't know, but it's something people have thought about. Fascinating. Michelle, thank you very much. And uh, she has a part two as well. Uh, here we go. Here's part two from Michelle's question. If all matter comes from the Big Bang, I assume that matter was sent in all directions. So are stars and matter that exploded towards the opposite direction from us visible to us and appearing as moving away from us faster than matter moving in the same direction as we are? What a great question, Michelle. She has a key insight here. It's not quite the way, she's not articulating it quite the way modern cosmologists would, because um, the way she seems to be visualizing it, it's like all of the matter in the universe was at a single point and then began expanding away from that point. And so far as we can tell, that doesn't appear to be what's happened. Instead, if you think about the surface of a balloon when it's very small and it's got dots on the balloon mm -hmm. and then you blow up the balloon. Well, the dots are all getting farther apart from each other as the balloon expands, but there's not a single point on the surface of the balloon where they're all expanding away from that point. Right. Instead, they're all expanding away from every point on got the it. surface of the balloon. So I wouldn't say that there are, or at least it's, it's not, it's not quite the way that uh, astronomers conceive of it to say there was matter that was moving in the opposite direction from us at the Big Bang. Instead, all the matter started moving away from each other. Having said that, she's right. The farther away you go from Earth, the faster everything seems to be receding because there's more space and thus there's more space to be expanding. And so the farther away something is, the faster it appears to be moving away from us. And in fact, some galaxies are so far away from us that they are moving at faster than the speed of light, and we can never see them. In fact, uh -huh. because of the expansion of the universe, every second, I think it is, something like 20,000 galaxies cross that threshold where they are moving faster away from us than the speed of light, and they slip over the cosmic horizon never to be seen again. And if you ask, well, how can, how can this happen faster than light? Well, matter can't be accelerated to be faster than light, but space is not matter. And so space can expand in a way that over a cosmic distances, something can be moving faster than the speed of light. It's not moving in its own 
frame of reference faster than the speed of light, but the frame of reference is between us and them are moving away faster. It's so big. I it mean, is really big. You yes. really like the the scale of the universe, both on the on on the microscopic level and then on the that macroscopic level. It's you 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 really can't hold it in your mind. It's just baffling. Yep. Maybe maybe in your mind. I don't know. Yeah, but I, only with powers of ten. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, uh, Lauren's got a question. Uh, it's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken today. If Jesus sits at the right hand of God, Lauren asks, who sits on the left? Well, we're not told, and it's possible that the answer, hypothetically, the answer could be nobody, because simply saying Jesus sits at the right hand of God doesn't necessarily, because God doesn't literally have hands. Yeah. This is a metaphor. And there's a question of how far do you extend the metaphor? We may not be meant to extend it beyond simply what's given to us, which is Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, implying he's he has this special place of authority relative to God the Father. However, we know there's a trinity, and so the Holy Spirit would have something analogous. And consequently, in various images from Christian history, the Holy Spirit is depicted at, as sitting at God's left hand, since, he, since the Son proceeds from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, or through the Son. So that could suggest the Holy Spirit would have a similar but different position of, of authority relative to the Father and the Son, and that's often depicted in Christian imagery as being on God's left hand. In fact, the earliest reference to that I'm aware of, I believe, is in the Ascension of Isaiah, which was written about the year A.D. 67, when in that work, Isaiah ascends up to the top heaven and sees the throne of God. He sees the Son sitting on the right hand and the Holy Spirit sitting on the left hand of the Father. Lauren, great question. Thank you very, very much. It is weird questions for Jimmy Aiken. Uh, here's one from Colin, and this one's pretty weird, too. I was wondering if it would be the sin of presumption to attempt to travel into the future. Since we don't know when Christ is returning and can't know that a particular future time will exist. Colin, thinking it through, I like it. Yeah, so I don't think that, I don't think that it would be the sin of presumption because we're already moving into the future. Yeah. And I mean, that happens every single second. Despite the song, time does not keep slipping into the future. It keeps slipping into the past because oh. we're moving forward in time. And at some point, we'll hit the second coming of Christ. Now, as we learned from Albert Einstein, it's possible to travel into the future faster from a subjective perspective, because if you go deep into a gravity well, or if you travel, if you accelerate near the speed of light, time slows down for you, even though it's passing at its normal rate elsewhere in the universe. And so if you and I got on a spaceship and started traveling, Let's say at one gravity, we're accelerating at one gravity, so it's nice and comfortable for us. Right. Gradually, we're going to approach the speed of light, and time will start slowing down for you and me, but it's going to keep passing at its normal rate back on Earth. Mm -hmm. And that means that for us, we're moving into the future faster than we normally are. So it might be a year for you and me on the spaceship, but it would be you know, say a thousand years back on Earth. Right, right. Gotcha. And so when we decelerate the ship, it's a thousand years later, even though it's been only a year for you and me. Well, if we can do that, at some point, the same thing would happen. We'd hit the second coming of Christ. And whenever that occurs, we're going to have to deal with the consequences. 
And so let's suppose we had planned a voyage that wouldn't get back to Earth until after the second coming, because we don't know when that is. So let's say the second coming is going to happen in the year 2500, but we've planned on getting back in 3000. Well, presumably, since we're humans, we're tied into we're going to have our judgment when the second coming happens. So Jesus comes back in the year 2500 and you and I are grabbed just like all of the Christians from all over the world are grabbed, according to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, to be with Jesus. So we're yanked off the spaceship and we experience the second coming. Well, what would happen if we were like on Doctor Who, we were... uh, traveling into the future without co- without passing through all that intervening time, essentially teleporting from now to oh. the year 3000. My guess would be in the teleport process, mm-hmm. we would again be grabbed and taken to the year 25,000 or 2500 to experience the second coming. In any event, I don't think it would be presumptuous because one way or another, Jesus is going to make sure that we get our final judgment and entry into the eternal order and merely the fact of moving into the future and not knowing when the second coming is going to happen isn't enough to establish presumption because we're already doing that. Yeah. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for the question, Colin. Appreciate it. And uh, Rob is next. And Rob says, given that Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant, would God have placed a punishment upon touching her as he did with the Ark of the Old Covenant, a la Uzzah? Okay, so this is referring to an event that occurs in Samuel where David is having the Ark of the Covenant brought up from a particular location, and they're dragging it on a cart that's being pulled by oxen, and the oxen stumble, and one of the sons of the priest, a guy named Uzzah, touches the Ark with his hands to steady it because the oxen have stumbled and he doesn't want it to fall on the ground, and Uzzah then dies because Mm -hmm. he's touched the ark. So that's what's going on there. Now, people may have the idea that the mere fact Uzzah touched the ark was uh, like anybody who would touch the ark would die. And that's not the case, because the ark had previously been captured by the Philistines, and they did not treat it the way they should, but they also didn't immediately die the way Uzzah did. What is clarified in Chronicles is that the reason Uzzah died is because they weren't bringing the ark, they weren't transporting the ark properly. Rather than using oxen, they were supposed to insert poles through these rings they had on the ark, and then the Levites would carry the poles on their shoulders. Right. And they're not doing that. So David clarifies in Chronicles that the reason Uzzah died is because they were disobeying known protocols that God had revealed to the Israelites. So applying that to Mary or Jesus, who can also be conceived of as the Ark of the Covenant, mm-hmm. um, I, yeah, I don't think you would automatically die for touching them. Right. What I you see. might automatically die for is touching them in some really horrendous way. However, maybe not even then, because the Romans drove spikes through Jesus right. and they didn't automatically die when that happened. So even even and and Jesus is certainly greater than Mary, whether you want to conceive of him also as the Ark of the Covenant or not. Jesus is certainly greater than Mary and physically torturing him and driving spikes through him 
did not result in instant death. Right. So I don't think that this is like any other analogy. It it ha- it can't be pressed beyond its limits. Yeah. And I don't think we could draw certain conclusions based on just the fact there's an analogy here. Thanks, Rob. Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken continues right after this. This next one comes from Sarah. Sarah says, my girls have a question for Jimmy. They want to know if Bucky Barnes from Marvel would be morally responsible for the violence and mayhem he caused while under a trance. Specifically, would he need to go to confession? Would he go to hell for the crimes he committed while under a trance? Okay, so we should mention who Bucky Barnes is. Bucky Barnes, back in the 1940s, was the sidekick of Captain America. And and he apparently died at the same time Captain America vanished. And for years and years in comics, there was a saying, because comic book characters so often come back from the dead. Yeah. Nobody stays dead except Bucky and Uncle Ben. And then eventually they brought back Bucky and they gave him a new identity for a while as a character called the Winter Soldier. And that involves some mind control. And then they made a movie about it. Well, so in order for what you need to confess when you when you go to confession is mortal sin. And in order for mortal sin to be committed, three conditions have to be met. You have to know the moral character of the act you perform. You have to know that it's gravely sinful. It has to be gravely sinful, and you have to do it deliberately anyway. There's a fancy term that theologians sometimes use. They will say you have to do it as a fully human act, meaning oh. you're, you're fully in control of yourself and you decide to do it anyway. It wasn't like something you did when you were intoxicated or spontaneously or reflexively or in the heat of passion or anything that could diminish either your knowledge of the moral character of the act or the degree of consent you gave it will keep the sin from being mortal and you don't need to confess it. So if you're in a trance, if you're under some form of mind control, that's going to either affect your knowledge of how wrong it is, or it's going to affect your ability to resist doing it. Yeah. Or both. Right. And so if you're in quote unquote in a trance, then you're not going to be fully responsible for it and it will not be a mortal sin and you will not need to confess it and you would not go to hell because you were not in control of yourself. Having said that, you may feel bad after getting back into your right mind and realizing what you did when you were out of your right mind. Yeah. Kind of like if you were, let's say you were a sleepwalker and you didn't, you, you, you didn't realize it, but one night you were sleepwalking and you got behind the wheel of your car and you got in a wreck and you killed someone. You feel terrible. You'd, even though you weren't responsible for that, you would still feel bad. And so you might need some psychological counseling or spiritual counseling to help you put that in context and get over it, but it wouldn't have been a mortal sin for you. Uh, Sarah, thanks very much for the question. And Sarah's girls, uh, thank you very much for that question. I hope that uh, settles your mind as far as Bucky Barnes goes. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including John Michael S., Mary B., Don and Michelle E., Marie L., and Marty T., Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. 
Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of our sponsors, including Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Our up next is a question from Paul. Paul writes, Jimmy, after my six-year-old was born with Down syndrome, I wondered if he would have Down syndrome in heaven or in his resurrected body. At first, I thought not, since it's caused by an extra chromosome in the body, which is not part of the soul. But I've recently come to understand that the church says our bodies are a fundamental part of our eternal existence, and certainly our intellectual capability affects our desire and ability to seek God. Will people with intellectual or physical disabilities have the same or similar disabilities in heaven? or after they are resurrected from the dead? And would his intellectual disability necessarily get him a get-out-of-hell-free card? So in regard to the first question, the church doesn't have a specific teaching on this, but the general understanding of theologians is that any disabilities we have in this life will not affect us in heaven. I mean, at least the historical speculation from theologians like Aquinas and other people um, was that our our resurrected bodies will be perfect. They'll neither have the um, the limitations of youth nor the limitations of old age, and they won't have diseases. They'll be basically in perfect adult prime condition. Having said that, we do know that in Jesus's resurrected body, he at least at times manifested the wounds from the cross because it, it Thomas puts his finger into them. You know, in, yeah, in John chapter right, twenty. Right. On the other hand, other times when Jesus appears and they don't recognize him, they don't notice any wound. So it looks like for Jesus, the wounds may come and go, and as a result, I, m- my personal speculation would be that bedrock condition of being in heaven is any limitations we have in this life, like Down syndrome or other things will not affect or will not diminish the happiness we have in heaven. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line one. We're not going to be suffering in heaven. And we likely or may well be able to manifest in different ways like it seemed Jesus did, where we could appear kind of any way we, we want to. So I would say if like if Jesus wanted to manifest his nail wounds, he could. I would I would suggest if he wanted to appear as a young man, he could, or a baby, he could. I would think our physical forms are going to be subject to our wills at that point, wow. and we can manifest them however we like. That's okay. my guess, anyway. That's not church teaching. And then the second part, he wants oh, to know. Yes, so um, in this life, someone with Down syndrome or you know, is is not going to have the full use of reason, and as a result, uh, will not be able to commit mortal sin in this life. So if the person has the grace of God in their soul, such as through baptism, then they're not capable of excluding the grace of God from their soul, and thus they would automatically go to heaven. Paul, uh, thank you very much. Uh, God bless you and your son. I uh, hope that, that, that both of those answers were helpful to you. Kevin wants to know this. If I happen to have a time machine and went back to the 16th century, 
would I be morally justified in kidnapping Martin Luther and bringing him back to my own time in order to stop the Reformation? So this is kind of a variant of the let's kill Hitler thought experiment. You right. know, if, if there's so, I'm not going to comment on Luther in particular because it's kind of inflammatory, but <laughs> extracting the principle, if you know that someone is going to undertake action that will cause long lasting bad results and you have time traveled to when that person lives, can you take action to intervene to stop the bad result? Yeah. Well, it's in part, it's going to depend on how time travel works. If time travel operates in such a way that you cannot change the past, then you may as well not bother intervening because no matter what you try, it will not affect the outcome. On the other hand, oh. if if time travel works in such a way that you can change the past, the most logical explanation for how that would work is what you're really doing is creating a new timeline where history goes differently and wow. you are transferred onto that new timeline where history goes differently. Now, points for thinking of kidnapping rather than just killing Martin Luther, because there are sublethal ways of dealing with problems and we want <laughs> right. to use the sublethal ways if we can. Having said, I mean, maybe give Martin Luther a course in 21st century Catholic apologetics or something. Right. Having said that, I would say if time travel works in such a way that history can be changed, then you would be justified in intervening to head off bad situations. So let's take it down to the small scale. And I think it'll be clear. Let's suppose I was transported back to the night of August 8th or 9th, 1969 at 10,050 Cielo Drive in Los Angeles. Okay. Have any idea I, what happened there? Manson. Manson murders. Yep. Okay. That was the night that Manson's goons killed um, uh, J.C. Bring, Wojciech Frykowski, Abigail Folger, and Sharon Tate and her unborn and baby. baby. And so let's suppose I and a, a SWAT team were transported back to that night. Yes. Could I and the SWAT team stop these murderers from killing somebody or these four people? I would say, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If history can be changed, we can save those people's lives. Right. And if you want to say, oh, well, that's a famous one. Well, then imagine a non-famous case. Let's suppose you time travel back and you see a murderer about to kill some random person. Right. Could you intervene? If history can be changed? Yeah. Now, will that stop the existence of the timeline where they died? No. That timeline is still out there. It's fixed. That can't be undone because if it could be undone, it would generate paradoxes. The, this is why scientists who, talk, who theorize about this propose you're creating an alternative timeline because otherwise paradoxes result. Yeah. And to avoid the paradoxes, you need to propose an alternate timeline. So what you're really doing is creating an alternate timeline where that person gets a chance to live. And I would say that's still a moral value. Having said that, there's no guarantee that just because you think a change is going to be an improvement, that it will actually be an improvement because there can be unintended consequences to actions. And so, OK, let's go with the random nobody situation. You save a random nobody from being killed. That's a good thing to do. But maybe the random nobody is the next Hitler. Oh, yeah. Well, and and, <laughs> right. and so so yeah. there's no guarantee, just like in real life, there's no guarantee that your intervention in a given situation 
is going to lead to a better result. It may lead to a worse result or an equally bad result, but you don't know that. What you have to do in the present is make the decision that seems best to you based on what you know. And if you were to travel to the past, I would, and it could be changed, I would say the same thing would apply. You need to make the best decision you can based on what you know. All right. But if you can save Sharon Tate, save her. Absolutely. All right. Fair enough. Thanks for the time machine question, uh, Kevin. Kevin, very, very helpful. Oh, no, uh, I'm trying to think of the movie that uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino did. Once Upon a Once Time, upon in, Hollywood. A time in Hollywood, where yeah. Sharon actually gets to live. Yeah. Uh, that's what I think Tarantino does is he changes uh, mm-hmm. historical outcomes. Yeah. Uh, often with flamethrowers. <laughs> In that movie, yes. Often with flamethrowers on, on the other hand, people Just up. once, it's nice to see the Manson family get the snot beat out of them. Right. Right. By Brad Pitt. Todd asks this. Could the St. Gertrude purgatory prayer be proof of intelligent life elsewhere? Follow my logic. The prayer is traditionally said to release 1,000 souls from purgatory. There are around 1.2 billion Catholics on earth. Let's say 50% practice. That's 600 million. Of those that say 10% know about this prayer, that's 60 million. Let's say 10% of those actually say it on a regular basis. That's 6 million. Well, 6 million times 1,000 souls is 6 billion souls. It's estimated that around 108 billion people have ever lived on earth. So, Today's 6 million people regularly saying the prayer would only have to say it 18 times in their entire life to cover everyone who ever lived. I say the prayer between every rosary decade, so perhaps we are praying for all the souls all over the universe since we've already covered everyone here. Or maybe I'm misinterpreting the promise of this prayer. That is a perfect question for Weird Questions with Jimmy Akin. So I really appreciate Todd's doing the math on this and he's done some research he's right that there's a it's estimated that around 108 billion people have lived in world history um it's in so there are a few things to say for people who may not be aware gertrude the great was a benedictine nun from germany who lived in the 1200s and it is claimed that she was told that if she said this prayer it would release 10,000 souls from purgatory okay it did not say that if anybody said it, oh, that this would happen. So there's one possible reason that the logic might not follow. In addition, the the claim that she was told this is not found in her writing. Oh, she didn't like say I was told I had this vision and this is what I was told. It, it's a legend, mm-hmm. and so it should not be considered historically reliable. So there's a second reason that the logic may not follow. Also, in the in 1899, and I looked this up, the uh, Sacred Congregation for Indulgences and Relics, which was the relevant body at the Vatican at the time, said that promises like this are not to be credited. So the faithful should not assume that just because it's claimed that a prayer is going to have this kind of effect, that it actually will. Okay. And that's something that strikes a lot of people, including the Sacred Congregation for Indulgences and the Rites, back before, this is pre-Vatican II, you know, it struck them as superstitious. Yeah. And they said the faithful should not give credit to these things. So there's a third reason why the logic might not follow. Then... Let's get away from the boring stuff and into the really weird stuff. <laughs> Let's get away from all that boring Catholic stuff. <laughs> just because it, just because 
even if even if all this was true, even right. if God did promise that if anybody says this prayer, it'll it'll coincide with the release of a thousand souls from purgatory. That doesn't mean that it was the only that your prayer was the only oh. one contributing to the release of somebody. Right. Let's suppose Charles Manson is in purgatory. Okay. And he, he may up in he, this he, he may need. Well, why not? Oh yeah, sure. He, he may need a lot of people praying for him. Right. To help him get out of purgatory. Yeah. And so maybe your prayer of this of this particular devotion contributed to that, but maybe somebody else's did too. So even if it was true that upon the saying of this prayer, a thousand people get out of purgatory, that doesn't mean that it, that it was just your prayer alone that was contributing to that. Also, the so there's another there's another escape route from the logic. Also, who says that uh, now um, Todd has proposed other creatures out elsewhere in the universe could be being released from uh, from right. purgatory. Yeah. But why not people in the future? Because God is outside of time. Oh, yeah, right. And so even though there's only been 108 billion, there there will be a point in the not too distant future where there's been 216 billion people. Yeah. Or even more than that. So we it could be people in the future are getting released. 432 billion. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> that was quick. What's 864. <laughs> okay, you win. I'm not playing anymore. Okay. Also, there if alternate timelines are real, it could be people in alternate timelines. Yeah. In, uh, and it could be people in other dimensions. So it we're not limited to just the people who've lived so far and the people who might be living on other planets. So... I, I think it's a very interesting, creative exercise, and I uh, appreciate the math that Todd did and the research he did. I think that's great. Right. I do think there are multiple reasons, though, why it might not follow. Uh, and in fact, I actually do. A, a, I have a. I have. A, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this. I think I maybe have once or twice, but I have a, a private devotion that I've just I've come up with on my own. So oh, you the, have mentioned this yeah, one time. I won't yeah. say the whole thing, but as part of it. Every day I try to pray for for everybody who would who has asked my prayers or would want my prayer or who would benefit from prayer across all times and worlds. Because God is in charge of all times and worlds and he can apply my prayer to yeah. whenever it needed. And right. so I try to do that every day as part of my own personal devotions. Uh, I really liked this question. I, I appreciated the math uh, as well. I appreciated that you did that. You calculated it out. I wonder how they calculate that 108 billion people have ever lived. That's a that's pretty complicated yeah, stuff. It it's it, the calculation is interesting. It's based on a variety of of inputs from different pieces of historical data. It's easily possible though to figure I mean so there was a a physicist in the um in the 20th century named Enrico Fermi and he was famous for doing kind of back of the napkin calculations. I, yeah. I know I've mentioned this to you, where he would give his students an assignment and say, OK, estimate the total number of protons in the universe. Yeah. And they would be able to come up with a reasonable estimate. And the reason for that is that if you can think of the relevant parameters, some of them you're going to overestimate, some of them you're going to underestimate. Right. And over multiple factors, the over and underestimations will cancel out. Yeah. And you end up with a good ballpark estimation based on very little initial data. Well, it, it, I did a number of years ago in an Excel spreadsheet. You assume that 1.5 children survive to adulthood on average and get married. How fast would the world population grow? And it would be 
enormously big. So I could show just from that that it has to have been less. And then based on various factors, you can do the calculations of how many are likely. Jimmy, those were excellent questions and answers. So that's it from us. What are your theories about these listeners' weird questions that we got for this Thanksgiving? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. Check it out at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, please do subscribe. I'm trying to grow my channel, and I'd really appreciate it. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be doing another question-based show. Every three months, we do an episode where we answer the questions from the patrons who make the show possible. So next week, we'll be talking about de-extinction or bringing animals, uh, bringing back animals that have gone extinct, as well as artificial intelligence, deja vu, left-handedness, psychohistory, the Aramaic of the Lord's Prayer, saucer-shaped aircraft built by humans, and more. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. That helps us grow the community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 234. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by DeliverContacts.com, offering contact lenses at low prices with free delivery. Visit DeliverContacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Stargate. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash stargate.